0: All right. Well, if you want to grab a seat, it's good to be with you guys. Thanks so much for being here this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew 5, where we are continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount um, for the fourth Sunday in a row. Uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking particularly at Matthew 5, verse 5. Matthew 5, verse 5. Um, Well, welcome this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're here this morning. If you take a moment, fill out the Connect card. Um, They actually weren't in your bulletins because you only got like a single half sheet in your bulletin, but they're available out there. Um, there also is a like an online connect card that you can fill out. You can just go to our website and you'll see it on there uh, once you click on the menu. Uh, and just fill that out. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know how we can uh, get in touch with you, get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to get connected with you and, and get you plugged into what God's doing here. All right. We are looking at Matthew 5, verse 5. But I'm going to read Matthew 3. Uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Let's read God's Word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning. And uh, we know that you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. You are worthy of the sacrifice of our lives. So would you help us now to open our lives to you, open our hearts to you, open our minds to you, open our wills to you. And to be formed deeply by the utterances of your son here. To mimic him, to manifest his character in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during our time together on Sunday mornings, obviously, we're exploring uh, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus' justly famous Beatitude statements in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. And uh, in Matthew 5, 3 through 10, 3 through 12, we see Jesus use this word over and over again. It's translated as the word blessed blessed. And and we've seen that you could also translate this word as happy. You could also translate this word as as flourishing. Um, He's not talking about a a kind of happiness that is um, what we often equate to happiness, which is temporal fleeting feelings of pleasure based on good circumstances. He's talking about uh, the fullness of human flourishing. He's talking about living a life of deep meaning and purpose and, and living a life of human flourishing. And, and so we've seen that these beatitude statements that Jesus is giving here is they are congratulatory descriptions to those who are, giving, who are living the good life. And as he's providing these congratulatory descriptions to those living the good life, he's inviting us into that good life, into that way of being in the world. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, he describes the Beatitudes this way. He says, the Beatitudes are Jesus. They're Jesus declaring with authority what is the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing. They are Jesus's answer to the universal and philosophical religious question, how can one be truly happy? But as you read the beatitude statements... We're just confronted with something amazing. And that's that the way of being in the world that will result in true happiness and human flourishing, according to Jesus, is low and it's cross-shaped. It's low and it's cross-shaped. You see, the part of what's so fascinating about Jesus' Beatitudes is the people he's congratulating, the people he's commending, the people he's saying are the happy ones, the blessed ones, the flourishing ones— are not at all who the world would typically call happy, blessed, flourishing. Not not at all the ones that the world would commend and congratulate, congratulate. He says that the poor in spirit are happy. He says that the mourning are blessed. He says that the meek are flourishing. He says that the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted are to be congratulated. Those are not typically people that your average American would call blessed. If we were to come up with American Beatitudes, it would probably go something like this. Elated are the egotistic for they'll do whatever it takes to to get what's theirs. Flourishing are those who feel good all the time. Because the pleasures of this life, who knows, they may be all we have. Prospering are the pugnacious, pompous, and proud because they get all the best stuff. Congratulations to those who are, deliver, who are on the delivering end of hurt and hardship, because in this world you're either the butcher or the cattle. Rapturous are the ruthless, for they're making their own way in life. Good on those who put on a good show of morality and goodness, because people will probably think well of them. Graced are those who hold grudges, because they'll never be wronged by the same person twice laudable are those who live a life of ease because again all we may have are the pleasures of who of this life who knows what is to come but you see jesus turns all of this on its head and he asserts the upside down nature of his kingdom it's not the egotistic it's not the proud and pompous it's not the fakes and the grudge holders that are flourishing it's actually the broken and contrite in heart It's actually those who are mourning and longing for God's kingdom to come. It's actually those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. It's actually the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, he says, that are flourishing according to Jesus. And according to our beatitude this morning, it's the meek. The meek are flourishing. The meek are happy. The meek are blessed. Why? Well, happy are the meek for because they will inherit the earth. Of course, as we explore this, this morning, we, we need to understand that we don't really use the, the word meek all that much. It's not commonly used, not a commonly understood word today. So we need to understand what it means to be meek. What is this virtue of meekness that Jesus is talking about? But not only that, we also want to know what causes, what undergirds this virtue of meekness in God's people? What causes God's people to be meek? And we also want to explore why the meek are blessed. What, what makes the meek a people who are blessed? Why are they flourishing? On what grounds can, can Jesus say that they are happy? And so this morning we're going to look at the character of the meek, the confidence of the meek, and the future of the meek. The character the confidence in the future of the meek. First, the character of the meek. Now, it's important, again, that we understand who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the character of his disciples. Uh, when, we come, uh, to G- when we come to Jesus to become his disciples, uh, we come as we are but we don't stay as we are. So these are not entrance requirements or prerequisites to becoming a disciple of Jesus, but when we come to Jesus, he changes us and transforms us and his kingdom takes deep root in our lives and in our hearts and changes us to become more and more like Jesus. And the beatitudes are kind of a summary, they're kind of a summary description of what this transformed people that we call Jesus's disciples, what they look like. Uh, he's talking about the character of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, You know, the Beatitudes, they function in many ways, kind of like the the fruit of the Spirit passage in in Galatians 5. Um, Jesus' disciples, you know, we we see in in Galatians 5 that Jesus' disciples, they embody a certain character. They live a certain way of life. And and we see the same here in Jesus' Beatitudes. Jesus' disciples are poor in spirit. They long for the full realization of the kingdom of God. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And we know here, we see Jesus say here that they're meek. Jesus' disciples are meek. What does it mean to be meek? Uh, what, what would someone's character have to be like for Jesus to call them meek? Uh, well, it doesn't mean, what, what it doesn't mean, you know, when, when we use the word meek, um, we, we use it in a, in a few different ways in our sort of modern American English uh, context. Um, sometimes we use the word meek to describe like a, a personality trait, Uh, We use it to talk about like personality traits of of people who have kind of mild or quiet personalities. Um, We we might describe them as being meek. And that's not what Jesus is talking about Here, he's not just talking about people who are naturally, just by nature of their personalities, quiet and mild. He's not talking about a a personality trait. He's talking about a kingdom characteristic. He's talking about what Galatians 5, like we've already said, will call a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, He's talking about virtue wrought in someone's life by the presence and transformation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We see in Galatians 5 that gentleness or meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a supernatural virtue brought about by the Spirit's presence in someone's life. It's not just a natural personality trait. Uh, Furthermore, by meek, Jesus is not talking about people who are cowardly. He's not talking about people who are spineless people-pleasers. You know, sometimes in the English language, we can use the word meek in that way uh, to describe people who are cowardly or people who are dominated by people-pleasing, people people who are afraid to speak up or to stir the pot for fear of not being liked or or worse, being persecuted. Uh, Obviously, Jesus' disciples are not cowardly, they're not spineless people-pleasers, because then they would have no reason for being persecuted, as Jesus says his disciples are in the last beatitude. Uh, you know, interestingly, this word translated as meek here, the word is, uh it was actually also to, uh, a word used to describe uh, in uh, the Greco-Roman world, a word used to describe horses that had been broken. Um, so, like it could be even used to describe a war horse uh, a horse that would uh, be ridden into battle um, it was It was described even uh, as as Uh, war horses who have been trained and broken to follow their riders' orders into battle. Uh, So obviously, such a horse, it's not wild, it's not aggressive, it's not unpredictable, but at the same time, it's also not cowardly, it's not spineless. It goes into battle and faces fierce situations. Such a horse would be described as meek here, it would be described as as prey use. So the meek are are not simply those who are quiet and mild by nature, uh, nor are they cowardly, cowardly spineless people pleasers so what are they what is the character of the meek what is this this virtue that we call meekness uh, so like those horses that have been broken of their wildness, those who are meek, those who embody this kingdom characteristic are those who have been broken of their pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. They are, not, they are those who are not violent or vengeful. They are those who do not seek revenge or retaliation. Instead, those who are meek and humble and gentle, uh, those who are meek are those who are humble and gentle. Um, In fact, this word is translated as meek here is also translated in other places in the New Testament as humble or gentle. Uh, The the word is is actually used four times in the New Testament, and three out of the four times are here in Matthew. Um, And it's translated here in this beatitude in Matthew uh, as meek. In Matthew 11, it's translated as gentle. In Matthew 21, it's translated as humble. And those are all perfectly good translations of the word. To be meek is to be humble and gentle. To be uh, meekness is a a humble gentleness or a gentle humility. Uh, Those who are meek are gentle and lowly and humble. Uh, When they meet, when those who are meek meet with a person who is needy or broken, they show themselves kind and gentle and merciful. When the meek are wronged and sinned against and face injustice in their lives, they don't seek vengeance. They don't resort to violence and aggressive behavior. Rather, they are gentle. Um, You know, Jesus actually will go on in Matthew 5 to exhort his disciples to meek and gentle behavior in the face of being wronged or when meeting with the needy and broken. Uh, you know, This is the introduction to a sermon, so if you want to look at what, meekness, at what meekness looks like according to Jesus, read on in the sermon. He'll describe it, and that's exactly what he does in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, listen to what Jesus says about people who uh, uh, manifest meekness. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, Jesus, that is Jesus's exhortation to his disciples to manifest meekness in the face of injustice. He exhorts his people to manifest a character of humble gentleness or gentle humility. Now, interestingly, I mentioned that this word is used in uh, in the New Testament, uh, four times. Three out of the four times are here in Matthew. One is here in the Beatitudes, and the other two are actually describing the very character and disposition of Jesus himself. Uh, so another place we find this word is in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when Jesus says, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am prayus, and lowly in heart.'" You will find rest for your souls. Another place this word is found is, is in Matthew 21, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And there, Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah 9.9, 9, and he says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, pray use, and, and mounted on a donkey. So in other words, Matthew is saying that if we want to know what it means to be meek, to be gentle, to be humble, we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. Look at his character. Look at his interactions with others. Look at the way he responds when he's mistreated and sinned against and wronged. Look, look, look at the way he treats the lowly and the lost. Look at the way he's not self-assertive and proud and pompous, but he's humble and lowly and he's content with ministering and loving and serving in obscurity. But actually one such place we see Jesus' humility and gentleness is in Matthew 12, 9-21. And uh, this is where we see Jesus come to a synagogue, and there he meets a man who has a, a withered hand, a man whose whose hand is deformed, and what, he wasn't able to use it to do ordinary everyday things. and And Jesus sees the man, and he has compassion on him. He has compassion on. Him. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, going, "What is he going to do? They're not meek. They're not gentle. They're not humble. They're not compassionate." But Jesus is looking at this man, he has compassion on him, and so he heals him. And Jesus starts gathering all sorts of attention, bad attention from the Pharisees, good attention from these crowds. And so when this happens, he withdraws from the public eye, and he goes into the desert, the wilderness. And some of these crowds, these who are sick and physically disabled, they follow him there. And, and, and Jesus, it says, it says, he heals them all. But then he tells them not to make him known, not to promote him and call out about his power and abilities, not to promote him. And then Matthew, to talk about the character and disposition of Jesus, to describe this meekness that Jesus embodies, he quotes Isaiah 42, a prophecy about Jesus, which speaks about his character and disposition. And this is what it says. It says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. You see, he's, he's humble. He's not promoting himself. Not only that, it says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, he's saying that Jesus is humble. He's not self-promoting and self-aggrandizing. Like he's, not, he's content with quietly serving and loving and helping in obscurity in the background. Like, like He's content with serving and it not trending on Facebook or Instagram see, he's humble, and not only that, but he's gentle. You see how he heals the broken and needy, how he doesn't break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick, but he heals the bruised and faintly burning, those whose lives have almost snuffed them out. He's humble, and he's gentle. But not only do we see this in his life and ministry, we see this in his crucifixion and death. When, when we look at Christ's character and disposition displayed in his betrayal and beating in his execution and death, You see the true beauty of meekness. He was unjustly arrested and subjected to a ridiculous trial, a kangaroo court. And yet while subjected to such injustice and cruelty, Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't assert himself. He was meek. And not only that, but in the face of such injustice, in the face of such cruelty and brutality, while he hung there on that cross, he he prayed for his enemies and those that crucified him. Luke 23 34 says that while hanging on the cross, experiencing such pain and agony and injustice, he prayed for those who were crucifying and killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. You see it. Do you see the humility? Do you see the gentleness of Jesus? Do you see that instead of being self-aggrandizing, he's humble? Do you see that instead of being vengeful and violent, he's gentle? Instead of seeking revenge and retaliation, he forgives and entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. That's what it means to be meek. Jesus is the meek one. And here in this beatitude, he's he's beckoning us. He's inviting us to follow in his footsteps. To be gentle to the lowly and broken and needy and to do so quietly and in obscurity. To do so humbly. He's inviting us into a way of life, not not to be self-aggrandizing, not to be self-promoting, but to love and serve others. And while doing so, being content with knowing that our good deeds are seen by our Father who is in heaven. Not only that, but he's inviting us when wronged, not to be consumed with vengeance and violence and getting even, not to be concerned with personally seeing to it that every wrong is righted, that every time we're wronged, we we receive perfect restitution and recompense, but to be gentle, gentle and forgiving, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That's the character of Christ's disciples. That's the character of the meek. But now we would be remiss if we talked about the character of the meek and didn't talk about what drives and causes such meekness in the first place. And so we need to not just look at the character of the meek, but the confidence of the meek as well. What drives such meekness? What drives such humility and gentleness? What causes one to live a humble and lowly and quiet and gentle life. What causes one to respond with love and kindness and gentleness when they're wronged and sinned against? Well, one thing that's really interesting about this particular beatitude is it's actually not the first time we see this phrase in the Bible. The first time we actually see this phrase in the Bible is in Psalm 37. We've been reading it throughout the morning. In Psalm 37, verse 11, it says, the meek shall inherit the land, or the meek shall inherit the earth. And you know, you've seen it this morning. The psalm is fascinating because it sets up a very stark contrast between two types of people. On the one hand, you have the proud and violent. And on the other hand, you have the humble and gentle. And the proud and violent are those who are constantly oppressing and sinning against the humble and gentle, the the meek. The proud and violent are those who are self-assertive and self-aggrandizing. They're often rich. They approach life in a whatever I want, I will take sort of mindset. They're violent and they achieve their desires and dreams through violent means. They're living in the moment and believe that worldly comforts and, and possessions are all that's worth living for. The meek, on the other hand, they're not violent. And Psalm 37.8 says that they refrain from anger and forsake wrath. They don't fret, it says, when wronged or sinned against, but rather they wait for the Lord. They wait for the Lord. And the outcome, the future of both, is also starkly contrasted, isn't it? So the outcome and future of the violent and proud is destruction. And verse 1 says that they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And verses 9 and 10 say that they will soon be cut off and be no more. They will perish. They will be judged by the God of the meek. The meek, however, verse 11 says, are those who will inherit the earth. Verse 11 says that, that the meek, they are those who uh, delight themselves in abundant peace, abundant shalom actually, the fullness of flourishing and happiness and wholeness that we've been talking about as we've been walking through the Beatitudes. So understand, this is the confidence of the meek. They wait for the Lord because they are confident that final and ultimate judgment belongs to their God. That's the confidence of the meek. That's what drives and motivates and causes and undergirds meekness in life of God's people. God will judge. God will set all things straight. God will right all wrongs. He will ultimately, finally, at the end of the age, judge and condemn the wicked, the proud, the violent, and cast them into the lake of fire forever. He will judge and condemn them to hell forever, but he will lift up the lowly and exalt the meek. God's judgment is the confidence of the meek. Now, I know that as we're talking about this, some of you Find this distasteful, right? Like, I understand that when we start talking about final judgment, when we start talking about God's justice and condemnation of the wicked and violent and proud, some of us start getting a bad taste in our mouths. Some of you are going, yeah, you know, I, I was with you when you were talking about living a life of meekness and gentleness and humility and kindness and forgiveness. I'm for all that. And this talk of judgment and condemnation and eternal suffering for the wicked and proud, and violent, that just seems to kind of contradict all of what you're just talking about when you talk about the being humble and meek and the rest of it. These, these two things seem antithetical to one another. I'd like you to be open to the possibility, just for a moment, that these two things are not antithetical. They actually go hand in hand. They are complementary. Uh, so Tim Keller has this wonderful book called Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. It's a really good book. Uh, Like, if you're a Christian struggling with with doubt, some intellectual claims of Christianity, I'd highly recommend you read it. Uh, Or if you're not a Christian, you're either seeking, questioning, exploring, or if you're an all-out skeptic, I'd highly recommend you read the book. I'll buy it for you. We can talk about it. Um, But in this book, Keller actually, he interacts with this very topic— how can people who are called to love their enemies and forgive those who wrong them and persecute them, how can they consistently believe in a God who will finally and ultimately judge and condemn at the end of the age? How does that go hand in hand with the Christian faith? Because, because some tend to think that if you believe in a God who will ultimately and finally judge and condemn, that you actually tend to become that kind of person, a person who, who is judgmental and, and condemning to others a person who will actually become violent and judgmental towards your enemies. You'll become the opposite of meek, in other words. But according to Keller, that's not the case. Instead, belief in divine judgment is actually precisely what causes Christians to be able to be meek, gentle, and forgiving people. And he argues this by appealing to the work of this Christian philosopher, a Croatian man, by the name of Miroslav Volf. Uh, and if you know anything about the history of Croatia, you know that they've got a history of bloodshed and violence and oppression. And Wolf's family is actually was actually on the receiving end of much of that. Uh, Wolf saw horrendous violence and suffering. And yet in the midst of it all, he remains, he's actually a pacifist, he remains nonviolent and non-retaliatory. And many wonder, how do you square that, Wolf? If we could call you that. And he says that believing in the final judgment is essential. And Keller quotes Wolf. Listen to what Wolf writes. He says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying that in all reality, living a life of meekness and gentleness, maybe what he would call nonviolence, living a life of meekness requires that you believe in divine judgment. You know, it's easy to reject belief in divine judgment, according to Wolff, if you live a life completely removed from violence and oppression and bloodshed, a life he calls in the quiet of a suburban home. Once you experience something like what Wolf has experienced, you realize the foolishness of that. Real meekness in the face of being wronged and sinned against requires confidence in God's judgment. And Keller actually goes on to comment about what Wolf writes. He he says, The human impulse to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly be overcome with platitudes like, now don't you see that violence won't solve anything? If you have seen your home burned down and relatives killed and raped, such talk is laughable, and it shows no real concern for justice. Yet victims of violence are drawn to go far beyond justice into the vengeance that says, you put out one of my eyes, so I will put out both of yours. They are pulled inexorably into an endless cycle of vengeance, of strikes and counterstrikes, nurtured and justified by the memory of terrible wrongs. Can our passion for justice be honored in a way that does not nurture our desire for blood vengeance? Wolf says the best resource for this belief is the concept of God's divine justice. If you don't believe that there's a God who will eventually put all things right, if I don't believe that there's a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. You see, friends, the the reason we as citizens of God's kingdom are meek is because we know that we have a God who will finally set all things straight. He will bring justice. He will right all wrongs, and we know that we can leave him to do it justly. That's our confidence. That's the reason we can manifest and mimic the character, the meek character of Jesus in the world. We don't need to get revenge. We don't need to be self-aggrandizing and self-promoting. We don't need to set everything straight ourselves. We don't need to be domineering and aggressive and violent to try to get our way. We don't need to resort to that. Because we have a heavenly Father who sees us, who knows us, and who will ultimately put all things right. He will eventually vindicate his people. Romans 12, 15, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's his promise to us. And so the meek trust him. We place our confidence in him. He will judge justly. He will cast down the proud and violent. It's coming when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But not only that, that's not the only thing we look forward to when Christ returns. We also look forward to the reality that we will inherit the earth. So lastly, let's, let's look quickly at the future of the meek. Jesus Says that the meek are blessed or happy or flourishing for because they will inherit the earth. The upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom is breathtaking. The meek are those who are going to inherit and own and rule and reign over the earth. You would expect the opposite to be true, right? Remember, the American beatitude, happy and flourishing are those who take whatever they want by whatever means necessary, because they'll own and inherit all the best stuff, right? Now, Jesus is saying the opposite here. Ownership of the earth in the final judgment won't go to the, the powerful and proud and pompous and violent and conniving and plotting and egotistic. It will go to the gentle. It will go to the lowly, it will go to the humble, to the meek. In Christ's kingdom, as he says in Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. And to understand this, we need to do a little bit of work. Some of you might be a little confused about when Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. And the reason that that confusion exists is because often... In our context, Christians believe that our eternal existence will be in a disembodied state in, in an ethereal realm called heaven that's way up there in the sky. Um, And that the earth will actually be destroyed and and dissolved and and won't exist anymore. So the narrative goes something like this. Jesus will return. He will rapture the church off of the earth and take them up to heaven and then destroy the earth completely and will live in heaven for the rest of eternity. A lot of bad or misleading hymns and, and, and lyrics and hymns can perpetuate this kind of belief too. You know, I think about how great thou art. The last line, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. It's a little misleading. Or one that's even worse, it's just flat out wrong, is the modern rendition of Amazing Grace. Um, The last uh, um, verse says, uh, the earth shall soon dissolve as snow. No, the earth will not dissolve as snow. Then the, the meek wouldn't have anything to inherit. That would be a problem. So think about, think about the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Lord's Prayer every single week before receiving the Lord's Supper. Think about the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. What's, what's the movement here? We pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what's the pattern there? It's coming down to earth. Not earth going up to heaven, not the church going up to heaven. It's, it's heaven and heaven's kingdom and heaven's will coming down to earth. Or even look at the pattern of the symbolic imagery in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, as it symbolically describes, Revelation 21 and 22, as it symbolically describes the eternal state of God's people, what's the pattern? Are God's people going up or is heaven coming down? Revelation 21 2. And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's heaven coming down. That's the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. That's the pattern of the imagery presented to us in Revelation 21 and 22. The final resting place of the citizens of the kingdom of God is not a disembodied, ethereal existence somewhere up there. It's life on this earth, ruling and reigning and owning this earth. This earth is our inheritance. Heaven is going to come down and make the earth utterly new. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold on, I know that there are texts in the Old Testament prophets and in 2 Peter 3 that speak about the earth's destruction that will come on this day of judgment that you've been talking about, and that's true. There is a day of destruction coming in the final judgment, Um, Peter speaks about this in explicit terms in 2 Peter 3. You can go read it. But interestingly, you know what Peter compares the destruction that's coming in the final judgment? You know what he compares it to? He compares it to the destruction that happened in the flood of the days of Noah in Genesis 6 and 7. So the earth was destroyed in that flood. But what rock are we sitting on right now? Sitting on the earth. The earth was destroyed in that flood, but we're on, it's the same earth. It was destroyed, but it was also remade and rebuilt and restored. The same is true of what's going to take place in the final judgment. The the earth will meet with a fiery destruction at the final judgment, but it will be remade, rebuilt, restored, regenerated. Some of the language that the New Testament uses to describe it is that it will be glorified with the presence of God. It will be be utterly and entirely renewed. Better than than the, the restoration that took place after the flood of Noah. It will be perfectly glorified and renewed, either immediately or after a thousand years, depending on what you believe. But the same is true either way. Eventually, the earth will be entirely and utterly renovated because heaven will come down and become one With the earth, and God's people will rule and reign over the earth with Christ forever. And we know that this is true because Christ has already, in part, inaugurated this reality. As we've already seen, He was the meek one, He was the one who returned violence with prayer and love. And forgiveness. He was the one who went silently like a lamb to the slaughter. He was the one who was gentle and lowly and humble on a donkey. He was the one who invites those of us who are weary and burdened and broken and burned out by sin to come to Him and find rest for our souls. He was the one who when reviled, when persecuted, when beaten, when crucified, when killed, didn't return violence with violence, but instead died for us, his enemies, so that we might become his friends. We see all of this in the gospel according to Matthew. But the story Matthew tells goes on past Christ's death, and it tells of his resurrection on the third day. And we see this in Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says something very interesting. The resurrected Christ, the meek Christ, the gentle Christ, the humble Christ, says something astounding. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have inherited the earth. The earth is mine. It belongs to Christ. As Abraham Kuyper said about Jesus, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, that is mine. He has inherited the earth. But the story's not over because he has promised to come back and to deliver this earth from corruption, from violence, from oppression, from injustice, from sin in its entirety. He will, as he promised to do in Revelation 21.5, he will make all things new and all that belongs to him as the rightful king, he will also share with us his people. That's his promise. He promises to give the meek, his disciples, the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That's why the meek are blessed. That's why the meek are flourishing. That's why the meek are happy because the meek and mild king whose lips uttered this beatitude will deliver this earth. He will make it new and he will share it with them forever. And so this morning we're invited. We're invited to follow in our meek king's footsteps. He paved the way. It's a narrow way, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We follow him. And as we follow him, we flourish with him and we will forever. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts that we might follow in Jesus' footsteps to be the meek who inherit the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.